Uh, tonight I'm actually going to do a thing about really what is RUF about? Because there's a lot, how many people is your first time here? Yeah, a lot of people. Um, so we're glad you're here. Glad you're kind of checking out what RUF's about. Um, we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 1. Actually, we're going to look at the entire chapter. Because um, I think this is a good passage to help you understand the things that RUF uh, really is about and the things we think are valuable and important um, for you all to, to learn and to understand um, as you go through your college years. Um, this is actually my 27th year doing RUF at Belmont. And um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I think... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing to be back here. You know, since we were here last time, of course, we've endured COVID. I've endured open heart surgery, which I had in April. Um, and so we should never take anything for granted, right? Should never take anything for granted. Now, the, the letter to the Hebrews was written to Christians who are from a Jewish background in the city of Rome. Now, it ties into what we're going to do this semester. This semester, we're actually going to look at the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark was also written to Christians in Rome. And Mark was written to Christians in Rome who were suffering under the persecution of Nero. And I'll say more about that next week when we start Mark. But Hebrews was written to these Christians in Rome before the persecution had gotten as intense as it got later on. And so later in the book, for instance, the writer says that you have suffered the confiscation of your property, but you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but it's coming. So what is it that we need to know? What is it that we need to, to, to have capture our hearts to endure, to persevere, to thrive? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Hebrews chapter 1. Let me read this, this passage. I'm reading the NIV, so if you've got one of those Bibles on your phone, you can choose different versions uh, it's the New International Version is what I'm using. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, quoting again from the Old Testament, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn, meaning Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, though, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. 
Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. But to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, I know there's a lot of stuff about angels. You might be like, what's that all about? Let me pray, and then I, I hope you're going to understand why this is actually one of the most helpful things for you to understand in trying to live the Christian life is the second stuff all about angels, actually. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your holy, inerrant word. We thank you, Lord, that you give us um, what we need. We pray now that you'd open our hearts to receive your word, your truth, and open our eyes to see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So there's basically three things I want to talk about tonight. The first is this. God spoke. The second is Jesus sat down. And then the third is, what difference does it make? When we're actually living in a world that is filled with all kinds of things that vie for our heart's affection, how can we actually learn to use the scriptures to trash talk our idols and the things that vie for our heart's affection? Because that's what's here. Let me, let me start with the first one. God spoke. Now, that's an easy enough thing to say. But if you understand the context of the Bible, right? Before the book of Hebrews is written, there's thousands of years of God speaking to his people. And the writer of Hebrews says that, right? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You know why that's so remarkable? Well, it's because they never listened. (laughs) How long do you keep speaking to somebody when they don't listen? You know, it's amazing that the Bible doesn't end in the garden. It's amazing that it doesn't end in chapter 4 of Genesis. And it's amazing that it doesn't end in chapter 5 and chapter 6. It goes on and on and on. Even though God's people refuse to listen to what he says, he keeps speaking. At many times and in various ways, he keeps speaking. Now, one of the most axiomatic Vital things to understand about Christianity. If you're trying to figure out what is Christianity, maybe you grew up with it, but you don't understand that much about it. Maybe that's not your background or you're not sure what you think about it. This is important to understand. God speaking is axiomatic to Christianity. It all began with a word in Genesis, let it be, and it was. And then everything fell apart when mankind refused to listen to a word. God said, do not eat. And they did anyway. God pursues mankind even after they've fallen with a word in the form of a question. Where are you? And a promise. He will crush the head of the serpent. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God speaks and keeps speaking because speaking and communication is basic to any relationship. And God did not create human beings just to be his little worker bees, but to be in a relationship with them, to be his cherished people that he loves and shares his life and his kingdom with. God has been saying the same thing over and over and over again for a long, long time, and we need to hear it. It basically comes down to this. 
I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the form of a vow. It's actually a marriage vow. Because God says, I want to marry myself to my people. As much as they keep spurning my love and turning away and running after other lovers, he comes again and again and again. Speaking is absolutely important. And so in our UF, we're going to regularly be in the word. We believe that God's word is this holy, inerrant, uh, infallible word. And if you want to talk about that, if you hear other ideas from friends or, you know, podcasts or, you know, YouTube videos or even in classes, I'd love to sit down with you at a cup of coffee over at Bangla Java and we can talk about this. I was on a panel a few years ago for uh, chapel where they had a number of different people. And um, one of the questions was asked, what do you believe the Bible is? Are you comfortable, uh, you know, they asked all of us on the panel, are you comfortable with words like infallible, inerrant, inspired? And I said, well, you know, those words aren't necessarily in the Bible themselves, but the concepts are. When the Bible says that it's purer than gold refined seven times, that's the idea of it's infallible, that it's without error. When the Bible says that it's a lamp unto our feet, that's the idea that it's infallible, that it's a sure guide, right? And then the other people on the panel went down the road, and one of the people on the panel said this, I believe the Bible is a record of the ideas that human beings have come up with as they've evolved this being that we call God. Now, I'll just tell you, that's not what the Bible says it is. Now, that doesn't mean that what the Bible says it is, is right. That's a legitimate discussion we can have. But it is important that you understand the Bible claims to be God speaking. And I think there are good reasons to believe that it is. That doesn't necessarily mean that the good reasons are convincing to your heart. I think it takes God's grace to make the good reasons convincing. And that's why we don't just have a lecture, but we worship. We pray that God would open our hearts and our minds. So God speaks. And the speaking culminates in Christ. And this is important to understand that there is a big story that all the little stories in the Bible point to. Now, actually, the freshman girls small groups are going to um, do this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a great book. I don't know, don't know if any of y'all have read it. It's been around for a while, so maybe some of y'all have. Um, but I love Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the book, the way she talks about the big picture of the Bible. She says this in the introduction, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. We believe that, that the Bible is God's speaking, and he's speaking a consistent message, telling a beautiful story of how he wants to marry himself to his people. So that's important. And in RUF, we think that that's vital for you guys to, to understand. And that's, we're going to be in the Word, and it's our small groups and in our large group meeting that we do on Tuesday nights. The next thing, though, to look at 
is that Jesus sat down. Now, that's a really big deal, and the, the tense of the language here in Hebrews 1 is important. After he provided purification for sins, or some translations say, after he made purification for sins, he sat down. Now, why does that matter? Well, Hebrews is pointing us to, and pointing people who are about to suffer to the point of shedding blood, pointing us to what Jesus did. Now, a lot of people talk about Jesus as a good teacher. And he was a good teacher, profound, right? And we'll see some of that as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But his teaching is not what makes Christianity unique or important. You know, every religion has teachings and has events that happened. But in other religions, other than Christianity, the teaching is the most important thing. The events are secondary. Could be different even, and it wouldn't really matter the core teaching, but Christianity is actually different than that. In Christianity, the teachings point to the events. Whenever you find weird events in the Bible, they're usually pointing to Jesus. Particularly when you go through the Old Testament. As if you stick around RUF, we love to go through things in the Old Testament. And all the weird stuff is usually pointing to Jesus. And I hope that you'll come to understand that, to see that. In Christianity, the teaching points to the events. If the events did not happen, the teaching is worthless. Christianity is about a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Jesus sat down. Now, why is it so important that he sat down? Well, the, the sitting down means that he actually wrought salvation at the cross. He didn't just make it possible if you add something of your own, like your effort or your faith. Faith is absolutely vital. But faith is the empty hand that receives the grace of God. It's not the missing ingredient that you contribute that makes Jesus' work on the cross actually do something. Hebrews is saying he sat down, he made purification. It happened before you were even born. And that's good news. You know why? Because if you didn't contribute to it, then you can't screw it up. What Jesus did has already been done, and God has already said what he thinks about it. The resurrection is, if you will, the exclamation point that it really was finished. When Jesus said it was finished, he meant it. And God ratifies it and shows it, declares it to all of us that what was needed to make purification for sins was done. And that's so important to understand. It's absolutely vital to know for living as a Christian in a relationship with God. You know, there's a, a great old hymn, Rock of Ages. Anybody know that one? Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Well, Augustus Toplady wrote that hymn back in the 1700s, and the original title of that hymn, it's kind of a mouthful. He, he, he probably could have used it with some marketing help. Um, the original title was A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. And he actually wrote it as an in-your-face to another guy named John Wesley you might have heard of. And John Wesley had, was teaching this idea that you could get to the point where you would be so changed by Jesus that you wouldn't consciously sin anymore in this life. And Wesley did teach that, though he never claimed it for himself. And the top lady said, no, that is not true. What you need to live and what you need to die is grace. You will never outgrow your need of grace. And that's why that last verse, I love that last verse. 
And remember, this is a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. You may have come here to Belmont like really fired up for Jesus. Maybe you've been, you know, the all-star Christian at your high school or in your youth group or led worship at your church. Whatever. This is the prayer you need. Nothing. No, sorry. Could my zeal. No respite. No. Do you know what that means? Respite is an old-fashioned word for rest. That means if you could be fired up for Jesus all the time with no rest. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow. That means even if I could weep over my sin the way that I really should. What's the next line? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's what you need to live. That's what you need to die. And that's what is the significance of Jesus sat down. He made purification and he sat down. And it's so important to keep the speaking and the dying together. The speaking and the making purification for sins go together. Why does that matter? Well, if you lose the connection between those two things, you really lose Christianity. Let me explain what that means. If you believe that God speaks, but you're not quite sure that he really did make purification for sins at the cross, well, then you'll be actually like most people who grew up in evangelical churches. You know, if you don't understand that Jesus fully dealt with sin at the cross, then every time you read your Bible and every time you go to church, you keep hearing more and more about all the stuff you're supposed to do. Right? As a pastor friend of mine says that, Kids who grow up in Christian you know, churches are so good at shooting all over themselves. I should do this, I should do that, I should do that, right? Because they don't understand how to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And if you don't understand that, as a matter of fact, there's a, a pastor, a guy named Richard Loveless. He was a professor who taught a man named Tim Keller. Maybe some of you all have heard Tim Keller uh, up in New York City. Uh, wonderful Christian teacher, one of the greatest Christian teachers of our generation, I think. Well, Loveless was one of his professors, and Loveless said this, that if you're a Christian who doesn't understand the finished work of Jesus, then you will be psychologically worse off than an unbeliever. Because you're always going to feel guilty every time you go to church, every time you read your Bible. And let me tell you, I've been doing ministry here at Belmont a long time, and a lot of students show up here at that kind of point. I've been trying to do this, I've been trying to do all the right things, and it's not really working, whatever that means. Maybe I'm not feeling what I should feel, or maybe I haven't you know, succeeded in the ways I hoped that I would. And all you have, like you either blame God or you blame yourself, if you don't understand the finished work of Jesus. You either feel like he hasn't given me what I've deserved because I've done so many good things and avoided so many bad things, or I haven't done enough good things, or I've done too many bad things. If you don't understand the finished work of Jesus, you will be miserable. Now, that doesn't mean that if you understand the finished work of Jesus, everything, all your problems go away. Not at all. It's still a struggle. And it's why the writer of Hebrews declares this to them again as they're about to enter into this persecution. But if you, on the other side, I should just mention this. If you believe that Jesus died and did take away your sins, but you don't really believe that he spoke an authoritative word and still does, well, that's what we call cheap grace. 
You know, it's the idea that I don't need to really worry about what God tells me to do or how to live because I believe, you know, that he's gracious. Well, he is certainly gracious. But I don't know what kind of relationship it is where someone doesn't really care how you live. I'll just tell you, the most insecure students that I've ever known are those whose parents didn't really care how they lived. It's true. There's just something about that. At one level, it seems like, isn't that what you'd want? You know, I, I mean, I've got kids, you know. What, what, don't they want your parents just to leave them alone and let them do whatever they want? But if you're raised in that kind of situation, you will always wonder if they really care about you. And it's like hey, if you're in a dating relationship, the same kind of thing. This person doesn't really care how I live. What kind of relationship is that? So the speaking and the purification for sins have to go together. And let me get to this last point. All this stuff about the angels. <laughs> Why does the writer spend so much time talking about angels? Well, if you only ever like watch TV shows about angels, it might be kind of hard to understand what's going on here. Because in, in, you know, in movies and TV shows and pop culture, what do angels say? They show up on the scene and say, they're there, it's gonna be okay. In the Bible, the thing that angels say is, don't be afraid. Why? Well, because they're frightening. They're awesome in the true old sense of that world. And if there was ever going to be a rival for the worship of Jesus, angels are a pretty good candidate for that. And it does seem that there was some false teaching going on in this community that the writer is having to kind of push against. And, and how does he do it? Well, he goes to God's word. And he basically says, like, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit down until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? God never said that to the angels, but he said that to his son. God never said that to your people pleasing, but he said that about his son. God never said that about your self-righteousness, but he said that about his son. Whatever it is that you're tempted to put your hope in, whatever it is that you think makes you matter, makes you stand out, or whatever consoles you when you feel full of shame, none of those things, none of those things are a good rival for Jesus. Because Jesus, God never said to the things that you're tempted to put your hope and trust in, because that's what worship really is about, right? And it, idol, idol worship is actually a really important concept to understand. What it means is that there's something deeper going on in your life than just what you do or how you think. That ultimately what drives what you do and what you think is what you worship. What do you worship? Where, what do you think about when you're free to think about whatever you want? Where do you put your hope in, right? And, and, and we're all a mixed bag on this, right? We all, like, even those who've been, like, walking with Jesus for a long time, there are still things that tempt you, that seem more secure, that seem to offer peace or hope or a future that can be depended upon. And God says, no, Jesus is the only one, the only one worthy of our heart's affection. And if God never said, to your idols, 
Sit down until I make all your enemies a footstool, until I give you, crown you with all glory and honor. If God never said that to, to anything else except Jesus, why do we say that to so many things? You know, um, C.S. Lewis, in one of his uh, essays, uh, talks about a thing he calls the inner ring. Anybody ever read that essay? The inner ring. It's, it's profound. He says that whenever you're part of a group, and this is pretty relevant here for, for y'all as you're starting this, this new semester, um, whenever you're part of a group, you always feel like you're on the outside looking in, and you always feel like there's a more inner ring that you want to be part of. Lewis says it's actually the thing that will make you betray your principles more profoundly than almost anything else in your life. Wanting to be part of that. You will do things that you never thought you would do in hopes that you would get to be part of the inner ring. And you know what happens when you get to the inner ring? You find that there's an even more inner ring. And it never satisfies and you can never really feel secure, especially if you had to gossip and, and backbite other people to get into the inner ring. And then you, of course, wonder, what are they saying about me when I'm not here? You can never rest in it. Well, that's one of the, the things that's so important to understand. What you're trying to get from that, if you're a Christian, you already have it. Here, here's what I want you to understand. God doesn't just trash talk the idols. He also reminds us that Jesus has done everything we need to be pure and beautiful in his sight. Because there's no way you'll actually let go of trusting in idols unless you understand that God is a safe place and that God really can receive you and you can trust him. And that's why we sang that, that hymn. I love that hymn. Um, listen, listen to these words again. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty. That doesn't mean that it's not, it's, it's good to know what you should do, right? But that doesn't change your heart. The law is good but it doesn't change your heart. So it's not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. We don't use that word very much, peerless. That means there's no rival, there's no peer. And seeing that, having your eyes open to see Jesus' beauty changes us. And then it, it goes to this. Tis that look that melted Peter. Do you remember that story that after Peter had betrayed Jesus three times? As Jesus told him he would, Mark's gospel, only Mark's gospel, says that Jesus met Peter's eyes and Peter went and wept bitterly. You know why that's important that it's in Mark's gospel? Because Mark's gospel is the one that Peter dictated to Mark. Mark was his protege. And Peter wanted to make sure that everybody understood, not only did I betray Jesus, but I caught his eye and it made me weep bitterly. Tis the eye that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Do you know what that's about? In Acts, Peter, the first martyr, as he's stoned, and you know what stoning is? Stoning is an execution for blasphemy. And as the Jewish leadership is stoning him, saying they've passed sentence on him that you've blasphemed and saying that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus he gets a vision. Stephen says a vision of Jesus standing. It's the only time you see Jesus standing in the New Testament. Do you know why that's significant? 
because standing is what a defense attorney did in the Roman court. So as the, the, as the Jewish leadership is casting stones, condemning Stephen, he sees Jesus rise to his defense. And let me tell you, Jesus never takes a case that he knows he won't win. So tis the face that Stephen saw, tis the heart that wept with Mary. Remember in Lazarus, John chapter 11, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Tis the look that melted Peter, tis that face that Stephen saw, tis that heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Listen, if you stick around RUF, I hope that that will be your experience that the word of God would become precious and valuable to you, that you would see Jesus as more beautiful and believable, and that you would be transformed. Justification is the first. How can we be right and trust in the finished work of grace? Sanctification, how can we grow as a Christian? How can we grow not just in external obedience, but real heart issues? It has everything to do with fighting against our idols. And that's what we hope to, to be about this semester. Um, we're going to sing a closing song, even though I know it's hot, but it's a, it's a good one. Um, it's another old hymn. We didn't put this one to, to new music, but um, Sovereign Grace, uh, those folks did, Before the Throne of God Above. So we're going to get the worship team back up here. Let me pray while they're gathering. Lord, we do thank you that you've spoken. Thank you that, Jesus, you did a finished, complete, perfect work on the cross. And Lord, may you help us to know how to fight against our doubts and our fears and our unbelief by using the promises of your word and the truths of your word to do battle against our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.